So this would have been a great case, instead of paying the uh, one million plus, to use that on attorney fees to fight this case because it's such a, a, a great case to fight. I mean, think of the arrogance of that statement, that a federal agency refuses to follow the interpretations of the federal judiciary of federal law. As I'm sitting here, my blood pressure is now about 220 over 180. Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, the March issue of Risk Management Monthly. Uh, Greg is on the Skype line. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hey, uh, I'm fine. You you okay up there? Well, you're, yeah. you're right. considering it's 40 below zero, I'm just fine. And, uh, you know, other people who have grown up here and lived here, you know, uh, Bob and I, both Detroit area guys, and uh, he's smart enough to move to Florida. I am not. Yeah. Hey, listen, who are you talking about? Bob, th- th- we haven't introduced yet, oh. uh, Bob. Bob Bitterman is with us, our uh, MTOLA uh, expert who is uh, broadcasting live from Sarasota, Florida. Isn't that where you are, Bob? I am, and uh, I have a, a bridge partner who razzes me. He's from the south, and he says it's an intelligence test. Anybody who still lives in the north at minus 40 degrees and could live elsewhere doesn't pass the intelligence test. <laughs> yeah, well, if Rick paid me more. <laughs> If Rick paid me more, I, I would live somewhere else, but what can I tell you? <laughs> you guys were uh, partners in the uh, in an ER group that was maybe 30 years ago, that far back, don't you think? Oh, um, at least that, yeah. It started in, uh, I joined Greg and the others in 1979. Wow. So I uh, around there for 16 years before going into academics. And you, know, you you've got to phrase this correctly, but I taught his wife anatomy in 1970, so I actually knew his wife before I knew Bob. And you know, we have a common friend who I had dinner with a couple of nights ago, uh, Neil Little. Wasn't Neil one of the original participants in your group or thereabouts? Yes, he was. So old old home week here. Uh, yeah, but, it's all incestuous here. Yes, yeah. And <laughs> now you're all retired. You're all retired. That's fine. Uh, Bob wrote a, a story in the ASEP Now about mm, it was about two months ago, Bob, where he was talking about some Mtala process and problem that was pretty uh, remarkable. And um, Bob is, I think. Are you working with this hospital as a um, consultant in their resolution of this matter? Uh, technically, no. I was working some as a consultant to their attorneys that they gotcha. had an outside firm. So so I know some of the details in great depth. Uh, others, I don't. I, wasn't, I didn't participate in the actual negotiations with the OIG, but I can give you some insight into some of that as we go along. Yes, and as uh, ASAP members, let me just tell you, in our last national meeting in October, Bob slapped around the people from the federal government pretty good. And uh, we thank you, Bob, for uh, bring, <laughs> bringing to their attention the fact that they're crazy on this issue. But thanks a lot. Yeah, I, I could have I could have handled that maybe session better in some respects, but it did raise the issue uh, in terms of how they're interpreting Mtala with respect to the stabilization of psych patients, mm-hmm. and it has prompted some discussions between ASAP and CMS, uh, which are ongoing with our current president uh, Paul Kivala. So there has been some movement on this, and hopefully we will get some resolutions that are logical and conform with the law rather than fabricated and uh, conjured up by CMS and the OIG. Well, Bob, before you go far, too far into the uh, into the woods, uh, some of our listeners are unlikely to know 
about this case. And so could I ask you to summarize uh, what all has transpired? Yeah, a couple of paragraphs. Um, essentially, it's a hospital. It's actually a very good player. Um, the, they boarded tons of patients in their emergency department because the local state hospital had closed half its beds. It went from 200 beds to 100 beds. The hospital even got together with others in the community and reopened 15 beds and funded them just to be able to get patients from their local emergency departments uh, out of the ED into inpatient settings at the state hospital. They set up an outpatient services center to help a lot of psych patients. They were a good player. But what they did have was an inpatient psych unit that only admitted voluntary patients, did not admit involuntary committed patients, and instead they would board them in the ED until they could get a bed in the state hospital. So anybody under involuntary commitment criteria would go to their state hospital. Well, they were being held in the ED for anywhere from two or three days up to two or three, four weeks. So essentially CMS and the OIG got mad saying, hey, you can admit them to your inpatient unit, all right? Or you can have the psychiatrist come in and see them in your emergency department instead of transferring them to a state hospital. So that's, that's the crux of it. Um, now, the hospital did have mental health workers it used under the auspices of the uh, psychiatrist. The emergency physicians had access to the psychiatrist whenever and if they needed them to help screen, stabilize, or provide medications. Um, it's not like they didn't like they ignored these patients. You know, two-thirds of the hospitals in the country provide no psych services whatsoever to put patients boarded in their ED. This hospital provided its mental health worker team uh, and its psychiatrist as determined to be needed by the mental health team and the emergency physicians. But CMS is very angry that they kept them there for long periods of time. So they claimed that uh, the hospital should have forced its on-call physicians to come in to help screen and stabilize all patients. They should have admitted all patients to the, involuntary, to the voluntary unit, irrespective of if they were violent or forensic patients or involuntary committed patients. And they claimed that they were never stable in the emergency department, meaning the emergency physicians were incapable of stabilizing the patients, and that every patient they sent eventually to the state hospital, which was six miles away, 11 minutes away, by police vehicle, they claimed every one of those patients were unstable under the law. Uh, by the way, Bob, as I'm sitting here, my blood pressure is now about 220 over 180. I've got to start a, 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 a <laughs> some sort of drip. Uh it's important that we point out the fact that federal law is always by circuit, by district. This is in one particular area of the country. This does not necessarily extend to all areas of the country. Is that correct? Um, if this was a civil case, that would be true. And in some ways, it's also true for CMS because CMS and the Office of Inspector General are technically federal, although there's 10 regions for CMS, and they all enforce it differently. Yes. Uh, but the OIG is purely a federal agency, so that doesn't matter where you are. And the problem is both do not follow the federal courts. And in fact, the individual from CMS at the uh, ASEP meeting boasted that she never read federal court opinions and they don't follow federal uh, judiciary. I mean, think of the arrogance of that statement that a federal agency refuses to follow the interpretations of the federal judiciary of federal law. That's what they said. 
this is bizarre. The other thing is they're not taking into account the fact that it costs four or five times as much to run a unit which is secured for for non-voluntary patients. It's a totally different thing to admit dangerous people to a unit which is not physically uh, equipped and is not staffed to handle these kinds of patients would be malpractice in and of itself. Um, the, uh, a couple of the newsletters, like ED Legal Letter, interviewed some of the OIG and CMS people afterwards and got to think. They never knew the difference between involuntary and voluntary units. They had oh, never God. heard. Hey, now, get this. They had never heard of voluntary units only admitting patients. And if you talk to any emergency psychiatrist or any psychiatrist, they will tell you these are two different patient populations. They're two different units. It's like it's almost like you've got an ER, uh, an ER in a hospital with an operating room, and, and oh, you're not supposed to be able to take major trauma when you don't have you know the NICU, the neurosurgeons. You don't have all the resources you need to do that. So, I mean, AnMed—that's the name of the hospital. They spent well over six hundred thousand dollars upgrading, upgrading their equipment and personnel and stuff to be able to take care of involuntary commitment patients. So. I mean, think of the ramifications of this. It's not like they were turning patients away based on economics. If you met their their voluntary criteria, they all got admitted. They had a 20% no pay rate. If you didn't meet the criteria, they sent you to the state hospital. Well, what CMS and the OIG is saying is the hospital, you no longer get to define your scope of services. If you now have a voluntary unit, you must admit involuntary patients or close your voluntary unit. If you, if you don't have the resources to take care of violent patients or forensic patients, meaning patients that come from jails or prisons and the law enforcement refuses to provide an officer, too bad. You have to admit them anyway. Well, that seems like in the United States, most hospitals don't have a psych unit. Those that do have psych units, as you say, maybe 20% of them can do involuntary, but that would this would affect a large number of hospitals in this country, I would think. Well, there are quite a few hospitals that only admit voluntary patients, uh, unbeknownst, obviously, to CMS and the OIG. But think about you not only putting the individual patient at risk, but putting them in a unit that really can't handle them. Right. You're also putting the rest of the patients and the staff at risk, where you may not have the security and, and the safety mechanisms and, and the educated staff to be able to handle these type of patients. Yep. So what has happened is the state of South Carolina, by closing 100 beds, has transferred the cost of handling these patients to private hospitals. Yes, and uh, another way in which the hospital was a good player is the psychiatrists in the community who had patients in their offices that needed to be committed couldn't get them in the hospital, so the, into the state hospital. So this, this private hospital agreed to uh, let them send them to their ED so they would hold them and take care of them until which time they could get them transferred to the state hospital. So here's CMS coming in and saying, and the OIG saying that the emergency physicians are incapable of screening and stabilizing these patients, but yet they already came under state hold papers, involuntary commitment papers. So you already knew they were suicidal. You already knew they met involuntary commitment paper. And the truth is, you know, we know how to stabilize patients in the emergency departments better than psychiatrists do because we do it all the time. So that was just another way that the hospital is a good player trying to take good care of psych patients in the community. 
you know, the, th the fundamental part of this that I find so distressing is the idea that uh, all of this distills down to uh, the uh, emergency physicians aren't able to uh, evaluate and stabilize patients. And the slippery slope on this is uh, the emergency department patients are unable to uh, assess and stabilize cardiology patients or pulmonary patients or orthopedic patients. I mean, uh, what makes this unique is the outrageous position that we are unable to uh, assess and stabilize this subset of patients. And w what gives them the, um, how, do, how do they get to that position, Bob? Um, well, one, I think, the, I think the reason they got to it is, well, I guess maybe two or three reasons. One is they want to control boarding. They don't like the idea that patients are not getting care or not getting the best care possible. Uh, and they see this as you're discriminating against some patients because they meet certain criteria versus other criteria. When they think you have a bed available, they think – I think part of that was just simply ignorance. They didn't know that there are different resources and capabilities that you need to take care of these patients versus other patients. Yeah. The other <laughs> is they want to use their definitions – and we'll get into this in a minute. Part of the problem is that they ignore the, the federal definitions and they make this stuff up on their own. And I'll prove that to you in just a minute. Uh, remember, if you're a hospital right now, you only have an obligation, at least according to CMS, to accept unstable patients. So if you're a psych patient and we can stabilize them in the emergency department, now you call off the private psychiatric hospital. They say, hey, have you stabilized the patient? And you say, well, yes, we did. And they say, well, we don't have to accept them in transfer. Well, they want to force these other hospitals to accept people in transfer. So they either have to change the definition of stabilized right. or they have to reinterpret the section of the statute that requires them, other hospitals, to accept people in transfer. Um, here's the nuts and bolts of it. First of all, can we provide screening to patients? Of course we can because the whole purpose of a screening exam is to decide who has an emergency and who doesn't. That is the singular purpose of the medical screening exam. So if I have a 50-year-old who came in and tried to blow his head off with a revolver, I think I know he's suicidal. I don't need a psychiatrist to tell me that. Or if they come in on psych hold papers from a board-certified psychiatrist saying he meets involuntary commitment criteria, I don't need to call in my on-call psychiatrist to do that. We only need to call them in when we need them to help us. you got someone who's on the fence about whether they're suicidal or not, you know, like a deranged teenager, maybe it's her second or third boyfriend breakup suicide attempt. Well, if I can't make that decision myself, then yes, I should call in my on-call psychiatrist. All right. So you need to call them in just like we call in a surgeon. If we can't figure out if it's an acute abdomen or something, we need when we need them. But we don't call them in for everything or the cardiologist example you just mentioned. We call them in when we need to call them in. All right. And psych should be no different. Okay. Yeah, by the way, most uh, emergency departments in this country get very few psychiatrists who come in to see patients. I saw a psychiatrist once at Bayer when he cut his finger and came in, <laughs> and I sewed him up. But there was nobody coming in uh, to see these kinds of patients. They are generally not covered by insurance. The, a good psychiatrist in the community wants a nice, shivering neurotic to take care of. They sure don't want a dangerous psychotic to take care of, and I understand why. Well, if, if you provide inpatient psychiatry services, 
CMS expects and requires that hospital to provide ED on-call psychiatry services, and in which case they do need to come in under EMTALA, just like any other member of the medical staff, when they are requested to help screen or stabilize the patient. Right. That's only when we need them. Well, I would say that we call in a, call a neurologist maybe in one in every hundred headaches. We probably call the surgeon in one in every ten belly pains. But they certainly can't think that we're going to call a psychiatrist in everybody with an emotional problem coming to the emergency department. That would be bizarre. Do they it's understand bizarre, that? And that is what they think. Yeah. Um, so besides... Uh, giving them a little trouble at meetings. Um, what are we going to do about this, Bob? I mean, I know Paul Keevil is aware of it. I know they've been meeting. What are we going to do to turn this thing around? Because I can see a quarter of our listeners being involved in these things. Well, that's the, that's the thing. Is the only way to fix this is legally. You either got to get CMS to change their minds or a hospital has to take them to court and prove them that they're wrong. Right. And unfortunately, this would have been the perfect case to take to court. They, they chose not to. Right. And actually, when CMS came in and threatened to close them down, what they should have done is immediately file for a temporary restraining order against CMS. And that way, they would have put the 23-day track in abeyance until a judge could rule on the merits. Right. They're, they didn't know they had that opportunity. They didn't know they had that option, which is unfortunate because that's, that would have been the right thing to do right then and there. Is that because of the legal counsel they had on this issue? Well, you'll have to ask them. <laughs> right. But that would have been, you know, the, the, the medical director from Region 4 out of Atlanta threatened the CEO with termination within 23 days if he didn't begin admitting involuntary patients. All right. At that point, they should have gone to court, got a temporary restraining order, which, would, which I, in my mind, would have been easy to get granted because the alternative is they're going to close down the hospital all right, and that would have taken care of all the medical care, all the psychiatric care, everything would have. And so, that would have caused real harm to the community. And that's what you need for a restraining order: is to stop is harm to the community, you to show irreparable harm based on their decision. So they're looking for injunctive relief. Uh, then somebody to come in and say, "Uh-uh, this organization can't close you down just because you haven't gone along with them." Is that? Yeah, fair? that's one way. Or. After it happens, and the OIG tries to impose penalties using what they believe to be the law, even though they're wrong, all right, is then you say, I'm sorry, we're not going to settle with you. We're going to take it to court. All right? The problem is you got to go through the administrative law judge proceedings. you got to go through, which are in HHS, the same as CMS and the OIG. So it's like you got to go in, 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 in their courts first. So you got to go to their court, then you got to go to their appeals board, and only then can you get to a federal circuit court where you have a judge who's going to apply the law as interpreted by the federal judiciary. Where so do we it's sta- expensive and it's time consuming. Where well, do we stand know, on this case now, Bob? It's done. There's nothing you can do about it. They settled it. They paid. Uh, they paid the 1.9, 1. 1.295 million dollars, and it's done. Wow. Are they admitting? Um, Potentially no. violent patients now. Yes, they they've spent six hundred grand, and they're spending an additional six hundred grand a year now to upgrade, refit, reeducate, restaff, uh, hire more psychiatrists, install telemetry, psych telemetry, uh, and, and change everything. So they and th- their board seriously considered just closing it down, 
But to their credit, they wanted to provide the service in the community, so they bit the bullet, and this is what they're doing. They didn't want to not provide these services to the community. By the way, since this case happened and today as we're speaking, the the Attorney General of the United States issued a memorandum limiting the use of agency guideline documents. Now, I think this was either in the end of November or December. And what it basically says is that uh, what they were saying is the Department of Justice was purporting to create binding standards by which other people have to function. And you know what? I, I think there is a sense somebody out there must be smelling what's going on. Now, this wasn't related particularly to this case, but I think there are agencies which kind of at their own whim invent their own rules, and then you're stuck paying the bill. Uh, you're right. This doesn't really relate to Imtala and CMS. First of all, CMS is the agency charged by Congress with interpreting, enforcing, and providing the regulations as it relates to Imtala. Now, the kicker to that is it has to comply with the statute. Correct. All right. So let, let me. I'll give you. I'll give you an example of that. We'll talk about definitions. The statutory definition of an emergency under Imtala says a medical condition manifesting itself by acute symptoms of sufficient severity, including severe pain, such that the absence of immediate medical attention results in all these bad things happening to people. Well, what CMS did is they took that definition in on their own, unilaterally inserted after the word severe pain. So instead of a medical condition uh, manifesting itself by acute symptoms of sufficient severity, they put including severe pain and psychiatric disturbances and or symptoms of substance abuse. Now, that wouldn't be a problem if they followed the rest of the definition, such that the absence of immediate medical attention result in all these bad things that happen to them. But they enforce it such that if you simply have psychiatric disturbances or are symptoms of substance abuse, they consider that an emergency condition, and therefore you now have a duty to stabilize them. So if they're schizophrenic and they cut their finger and they came in to have their finger fixed – uh, you've got to stabilize their schizophrenia as well. Yes, that's because they have they have interpreted that. Or and this is an this is a real case. Thirty <laughs> three year old comes in complaining of symptoms of substance abuse, requesting detox. All right, they think that's a definite emergency medical condition, and now you have to stabilize them and solve his detox problem. Well, it's not. What it is is a symptom that needs to be examined to determine if they have an emergency condition. Is he in acute withdrawal? Uh, is he awake, alert? Is he neurologically sound? Does he need immediate intervention to prevent him from going into DTs or or for killing himself or something like that? If he doesn't need immediate attention to do that, you can say, here's a list of the detox centers in town. Give him a call. All right? Rather than you have to transfer them in an unstable condition, all right, doing the Imtala paperwork to a facility that will accept him for detox. But Bob – isn't there an issue uh, in the past where they have said this is an emergency medical condition uh, and it was active labor when in fact active labor does not mean the precipitous delivery of a child is imminent active labor in primrogavitas last 20 some hours yet uh, so actually so they the said, first the first Hemtala case ever I think was in Texas the Patrick case about transfer of a woman who is in active labor uh, several hours, and I don't think anything bad happened to the child, 
But that alone prompted the, I think, the first action under Mtala. Right, but that the was, idea that here was the is the first time a physician was fined. Yes, that was Doctor Doctor Burdett, Burdett in Texas. Yeah, and so the idea so, is de facto active labor was unstable when in fact we know medically that that's not the case and that you could transfer a person a half hour away knowing that yes they're in active labor but this 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 woman is not going to deliver in that time frame no way or no how yeah the the words active labor were originally in the statute and it was removed uh, by congress and now it says a pregnant woman with contractions such that it's not uh, safe to deliver, it's not safe to transfer or someplace else to deliver, or the transfer may pose a threat to the health and safety of the mother. So they changed the definition. I'm behind the times then. Well, you're not behind the times in a sense, but CMS doesn't follow the congressional definition. They still consider active labor emergencies. So you're, you're right, but for different reasons. Right? And when they actually had a, a I remember I was representing ASAP at one of the meetings, and someone was talking about this. They says, wait a minute. They changed the definition, and they just basically sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, we, we don't care what the definition is in the statute. And it's the same thing with the, the, the real problem with the ANMED case. And this is what, this is what came out of uh, ASAP is this is the lead person for CMS and then agreed to by the lead person for the Office of Inspector General. So these are the two big agencies in HHS which control all of the EMTALA uh, interpretation uh, and enforcement and penalties, all right, said the following. They said a suicidal patient is unstable until which time they are no longer suicidal. That means till they killed themselves. And once they've killed themselves, they're stable. Right. Or until you get them a psychiatrist and they've been in the hospital for three months and they said, it's okay for you to go home. You're now no longer a threat to yourself or society. Um, now, that totally ignores the formal legal definition in the statute. All right. We would Here's point out to the we, let's point out to the listeners that Bob is also an attorney as well as a doctor, and so I'm sure he's read these words very, very carefully. Well, I mean, this is this is an outlandish statement that they stuck to. All right, here's the definition of stabilize, and this this is what makes sense. Uh, stabilize means with respect to an emergency condition that no material deterioration. Of the condition is likely within reasonable medical probability to result from or occur during transfer. So the first thing to note about this is the only time you have a duty to stabilize anybody is when you transfer them. All right, and this goes back to the genesis of the law. Greg was talking about early on, patients were showing up and they were being kicked out of the ED without being treated. All right, so they attached a duty to examine them. That's called the medical screening exam. All right, they were also being shunted down to public hospitals, and they were dying en route. All right, and so they attached a duty that says, if you're going to transfer them, you've got to make sure they get there safely. All right, that's the duty to stabilize. It's written in terms of going from hospital A to hospital B. And the only time you have a duty to stabilize them is when if you're going to transfer them. All right, so CMS and the OIG penalizing the hospital for not providing psychiatrists while they're being boarded in the ED is illegal. They're, they're wrong legally. There's no duty to provide any care whatsoever while they're boarded. 
It's only if you're going to transfer them. And the exact name of the section of the statute is restricting transfers until stabilized. So when you send them off to the state hospital, when you send them home, because transfer equals going home, or if you're going to transfer them to another hospital, that's when you have a duty to stabilize people, but not until. All right. So them using this until they're no longer suicidal, think of the ramifications of this. All right. First of all, they're ignoring their own definition, their interpretive guidelines, which says they're stable uh, if, once you've prevented them from harming themselves or others. <clears throat> so if you can transfer them in a safe way that you, they don't harm themselves or others, they're stable under the law. Bob, in, in, in the era that we grew up, stabilization of a site patient, if you're going to transfer, meant making sure they were safe on the cot, they couldn't hang themselves, kill themselves, that sort of thing. It was sort of held all in leathers. And for, for a transfer of 11 minutes, what is the reasonable probability that these people are going to have any serious trouble? Isn't well, that the question here? That is the question I asked CMS. And I says, first of all, there was on the ANMEDS, there was 20 cases they transferred to the other hospital. So if CMS is saying that it's reasonably probable these people are going to deteriorate en route, you would think that more than half of them, reasonable probably, think more than half of them would. Of course, zero of them did. Not a one of them had a single problem. All right. So that is the issue, though. You, when you transfer people, you have to say, well, how far are they going? Who are they going with? Where are they going? What capabilities do they have? Uh, what medicines do they might need en route? So all that makes has a bearing on whether they're stable at the time of transfer. And because this, when you think about it, material deterioration, reasonable medical probability, that's an ordinary malpractice standard. That's subject to the battle of the experts of Greg arguing after the fact, oh, wait a minute, no, I was clearly foreseeable to this person deteriorate. He was psychotic. You were sending him two hours away to a state hospital. He was going to flash and frail on the back of, an, of, a, of a police car, and he was obviously going to get acidotic and, de and deteriorate en route. Well, if you got a 50-year-old docile woman and she's going eight minutes away to a state hospital, what's the likelihood of her deteriorating en route? Almost zippo. Certainly not reasonably probable. But those are the factors in which we should be judged and taken care of uh, by the government not the fact that they were still suicidal. That's irrelevant. What's relevant if it's a safe from go to from hospital A to hospital B. Okay, Bob, I, I want you to concentrate on two more issues before we finish this up. What should the average listener to this program be looking at doing in his own place at this moment in time if they have a voluntary unit? Um, if the hospital has a voluntary unit, they should either A, close it, or B, immediately upgrade and start admitting involuntary patients because CMS won't allow you to have just a, a voluntary unit. You, you have to do one or the other based on the NMED precedent. And so we may be actually threatening the limited numbers of psychiatric beds there are in the country now if they can't afford to upgrade and they actually have to close a voluntary unit. That's correct. And so now you'll have more patients who are being transferred, still still more patients being transferred to other hospitals. And you now already have you... a lot of private hospitals second-guessing whether they should maintain psychiatric services. 
should you should we at this time be calling in because I know this is a huge change in behavior and it's going to be a huge confrontation between emergency medicine and psychiatry. Should we, if uh, before we transfer any psych patient, have to call in a psychiatrist to take a look at them? If you have a psychiatrist on call, the way CMS would look at that is, A, because they're still suicidal, therefore they're unstable under their interpretation. Therefore, the hospital has to use all its resources, including its on-call physicians, to the best of their ability to stabilize that patient. So what they'll say is, Dr. Henry, uh, you're an emergency physician, highly qualified, but you're not a psychiatrist. You must call on your psychiatrist to come and help you evaluate this person under the ANMED precedent. That's exactly what they said. If you read, you read the settlement agreement, right. it says, instead of being examined and treated by on-call psychiatrists, Patients are involuntarily committed and treated by ED physicians uh, and transferred to state hospitals. All right. I mean, think not, not only that, but think of the other ramifications. What this means is if you're a hospital that has an inpatient unit, all right, A, you must call in your psychiatrist, B, you must admit them to your facility. You cannot transfer an uninsured patient to a state hospital, even though when they passed them tell, they specifically said. This amendment does not prevent hospitals from making appropriate and safe transfers for patients for economic reasons. All right? That goes out the window. It means if you're Kaiser and you ask them to repatriate the patient back to our Kaiser hospital because we have the beds and the resources, you can't do it. You must admit them to your place and now fight Kaiser for getting payment. It also means that states that have Medicaid-managed care plans, you know, where they, also, they have contracted beds in certain hospitals, facilities for state Medicaid patients. Sure, yes. All right, you can't send them to there anymore because if you have an inpatient bed, you must admit them. Now you got to fight with the state about payment. All right, I mean, the truth is, the money should follow the patient instead of the patient having to follow the money. But that's not what we have in our country right now. Right. So uh, this you know, this sounds like a mess. This sounds it like a mess. Cha- it changes entirely the dynamics if you're a hospital that has an inpatient psych bed. Okay. okay. Next, what do you think we're going to accomplish from the ASEP national level? with the feds. We have an office in Washington. They're meeting with his people. Are they amenable to listening to what we have to say? Are we going to have to take some of a, a, do we have to file an action? um, (laughs) I'll answer that in a couple of ways. They have not been amenable to what I've had to say. (laughs) Whether we've got better communicators and people who are uh, less legally oriented than I am to deal with them, that might be much more effective. We have actually quite good uh, folks in Washington, D.C., and ASEP itself has a good reputation on the Hill. So personally, I think it's gonna, you're going to have to get someone from Congress to dial back the agencies, or the agencies are going to have to realize what they said at ASEP was grossly incorrect on a legal basis. I mean, they just clearly misstated the statute. Um, and it has enormous consequences if they interpret it that way. Are these people attorneys? Were these uh, attorney-type uh, the, folks? The person for CMS is not an attorney. She's a nurse who used to work in an emergency department. Oh, my God. Uh, the other person for, C- for the OIG, they are prosecuting as attorneys. And they, you know, I've, I've known this individual for 25 years, done many conferences with her. She's bright. She's knowledgeable. The problem is they don't follow the statute. They have an agenda. 
All right, they want to control how we take care of folks and tell us how to do that instead of letting Congress and society decide how to take care of the psych patients. And TALA was not meant to control the care of all things. It had it was a very limited law. And you know, my intent is, you know, we're emergency physicians. We try to take care of everybody. We want great access to care. That's what we're all about. But when it comes to enforcement, we want to have our government agencies only enforce the law as they are allowed to by statute right, and not make this stuff up and enforce it. Like I like to say, they're enforcing it the law how they want it to be instead of how the law is. And that's the problem with dealing with the agencies now. Yeah. If you want to get something done, the agencies, they need to go to Congress and get the law actually changed if that's what they want. What they yeah, can't give, do I'll, is invent law. I'll give you an example of that, and this is very relevant to emergency physicians. Uh, they've changed in how they can fine and terminate physicians from Medicare. All right, the fines now from televisions has gone up to almost 105000 All right, They changed the criteria, but importantly, they changed which physicians they can now fine. It used to be if the emergency physician did something wrong, they could fine the emergency physician. They can fine the hospital. Well, they've also said now uh, that any physician, particularly on-call physicians, who refuse to accept a patient and transfer from another hospital – that they can find them and terminate them from Medicare also. Well, there's nothing in the statute that allows that. Right? In fact, they actually went to Congress in the Clinton administration and tried to get it passed, all right, and Congress refused them. All right? And so when they added the penalties, when they did all this stuff, Congress knew how to penalize physicians. It didn't. Hospitals have obligations to accept patients, not physicians. So whether the on-call physician is assigned that delegated responsibility or emergency physicians, as it is in many hospitals, emergency physicians have the authority to accept and reject patients on behalf of the hospital. They can find the hospital. They can terminate the hospital because we are acting as their agents, but they can't find us individually. But they now think they can, and they intend to do so until someone takes them to court, and a federal court tells them they misinterpreted the statute, and they're wrong. So this would have been a great case instead of paying the uh, one million plus to use that on attorney fees to fight this case because it's such a, a a great case to fight. I think it would have been a great case for a whole host of reasons. One is they're good players, good actors trying to do the right thing, great reputation in the community. That's where you start. That's that's what makes a good index case. And the second thing is the statements that CMS and the OIG made. In a lot of the uh, the QIO reports and their uh, inve- investigation itself are clearly wrong legally. Let me give you an example. This is relevant, and this is relevant to docs, particularly those that participate in QIO hearings or, or do some QIO work in our states, emergency physicians. What's that QIO? Uh, quality Improvement Organizations. They used, they used to be called Medicare Review Organizations in every state. Now they have QIOs, called Quality Improvement Organizations. They give a worksheet to the physicians that specifically says the following. Note to physician reviewer, the term stabilizations are specifically defined under MTALA. These terms do not reflect common uses in the medical profession, but instead focus on the medical risk associated with a particular risk of transfer or discharge. What I was getting at in terms of material deterioration, measles medical probability, that's what it tells the reviewers. Well, their reviewer in the AMMED case basically said, well, why was this person unstable? All right. 
because he needed further examination and treatment of psychiatric conditions. Well, whether someone needs further examination and treatment is wholly the incorrect standard. Of course they do. Lots of people do. When we admit someone for surgeon, the belly, the neurologic case, they need further examination and treatment too, but they have met the legal definition of stabilized. If we send a pneumonia over to a Kaiser hospital, we've got it, their airway secure, they're breathing fine, they're oxygenated, the O2's on board, they've gotten the first antibiotics, but they still need further examination and treatment when they get over to Kaiser hospital. Same thing with the psych cases. They totally ignored the statute when they used language to claim that these patients were unstable. So it would have been a great case to take to court. Yeah, and I think that this is the kind of case that the AMA, uh, the American Psychiatric Association, and ASEP could have gone amicus with them uh, on the brief, and we would be seeking some sort of judgment here as a matter of law. They don't meet the statute. I don't but, know. So it's either, but, it's either we get them to realize the error of their ways, which I hope Paul uh, and ASEP can do uh, in a rational way and have good conversations with them. Uh, otherwise, it's going to take an index case. It's going to take a hospital that says, we're going to the mat, all right, and we're going to set precedent. Because um, you know there have been some cases that have reached federal courts after they've been through CMS and the OIG jurisdiction, all right? And the OIG and CMS typically lose those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, you know, it, it's time-consuming, expensive. Uh, there's a lot of hassle with it. So most hospitals consider paying the fine as a cost of doing business, and they move on. Yeah, and one problem. Sometimes with you the- can't blame them. Yeah, one problem with dealing with the federal government is they have an unlimited number of young attorneys <laughs> who are willing to fight things just just to learn their trade. And the way you advance in government agencies is is somehow saving the government some money. At Although least this, that's what they believe. This case uh, sounds pretty egregious and uh, obviously... Uh, would have been the one to run with. After the fact, I think it gets much more difficult to settle these things out and and undo them once they've been done. It is, but I'll I'll give you the the counter perspective from the OIG. They will tell you they, quote, have too many cases to handle, unquote, and therefore they're picking and choosing those that they think have the greatest impact. Right. Uh, Now, normally I would tell you to get a copy of the uh, settlement agreement, You'd have to go through a Freedom of Information Act. It would take months and months and months, and they would drag it out. Uh, they made this available immediately uh, to others and went out immediately and started talking about it in the press. So they had an agenda. All right, and so that they will tell you that. You know, they come to, I was at the last American Health Lawyers Association meeting, and there's a person there from the OIG. And, and she would tell you that, that their intent is to pick cases that have impact, uh, that are the most egregious, uh, that we can make examples of to set precedent and basically to scare other hospitals into behaving the way the CMS and the OIG want you to behave. Now, I don't think we should be boarding patients for days. I don't think we should not be providing them care and everything else. Uh, but what I'm getting at is that it's outside the purview of EMTALA, all right? That's standard of care issues. There's state law issues. There's hospital licensing issues. There's societal and legislative issues. 
but they don't get to use this statute to do that. That's my contention. Bob, I want to thank you very much for elucidating the finer points of this case. Uh, This is one we're going to have to stay on top of, Rick, uh, here on Risk Management Monthly, because it sounds to me like we got a whole lot of emergency doctors and hospitals in this country uh, that that could be involved in this sort of thing. I I think this is this is a big issue, not a small issue. Although this was a a regional issue, and I guess it serves as a precedent for the other regions uh, to uh, run with this ball. But what but what do you think the likelihood? is that they will, given the fact that there are so many problems with what they decided, and it, it is so challengeable. Um, this is how the OIG is going to interpret it. This is how the IG is enforcing it across the country. This is not regional, Rick. CMS, the regional office, is regional. Uh, and if you talk to people in the industry, they will tell you that Region 4, um, this is opinion, not fact, obviously, uh, but most of the problems in terms of competency come out of Region 4. Um, and I've had a number of dealings with Region 4 where I believe that's to be the case, but that's just opinion. So you got 10 different regions who have different skill levels, to, uh, but the greatest number of violations by far comes out of out of Region 4 in Atlanta. And that may be because we've got Florida. You know, it's an appendage down here that has a lot of problems. But uh, the See if the OIG enforcing this is this is a national level, and they've already done they've already enforced uh, this against other hospitals. This just happens to be the one that's made the most noise. Um, so, you know, you know, Ricky asked me to sort of well, you know, prepare things, sort of run with things. You know, most of what I've prepared to talk about here in terms of you know solutions, things hospitals can do to try to obviate, we haven't even gotten to yet. You know, we've just talked about the issues and the ramifications of, of their interpretations. Um, you know, there's 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 things there's ways hospitals can wiggle around this uh, in terms of trying to provide solutions that you know still take good care of patients, but try to stay away from the uh, enforcement and actions of dealing with CMS. Remember, nobody CMS never investigates, and the OIG never gets involved unless somebody complains. So if you take good care of folks and, and, and not have complaints and put together good policies and procedures, uh, you don't get in trouble with Mtala. Well, don't, don't keep us hanging here, Bob. Go ahead. Tell us what we need to do. We're listening. You've got the floor. Um, well, when it comes to screening patients, all right, first of all, make sure that the hospital's board formally designates who is qualified to screen patients. So if you're going to use mental health workers, if you're going to use emergency physicians, uh, how you're going to involve your psychiatrist, how you're going to involve state mental health crisis teams that come into your ED, all this stuff needs to be thought about in advance and put together in policies and procedures so that you follow that. Start using telepsych. We always think of psych as a uh, an inpatient problem. It's really not. You know, Emergency departments, when they send patients off, you know, the ones that Greg mentioned, most of them don't have inpatient psych. When they send them off someplace, quote, to be admitted, unquote, 70 to 80 percent of them are sent home. They're not admitted. They get them spruced up, meds, evaluations, outpatient therapy, and they don't get admitted. Yeah, actually, what they do is they bore them to death. They sit around (laughs) for so long waiting to see a certain group of patients. Uh, But I understand what you're talking about, that when the health professionals who have a little more 
uh, a little more cover than we do in the ER, uh, they feel a little more comfortable letting these people go. Yeah, well, they they, would, they do it every day. So when you got those kind of people on the fence, if you could use telepsych, all right, now they don't have to go anywhere, and you can resolve the problem. Uh, you know, not everybody's amenable to telepsych, but a lot of patients are, and that can solve your problem. And it's it's becoming very effective, and it's, and it's growing in use and popularity in hospitals that don't have inpatient or on-call psychiatrists. Yeah. I would point out to all of our listeners that when you're the doc who's sitting there, if they send in a mental health worker who, again, two years ago was a patient, uh, and tell you it's okay or it's not okay to let somebody go, it's still your license on the line. When you sign that chart, if you don't like the, the opinion you're being given, call up their supervisor, and somewhere along the line, they usually have a psychiatrist who these people are supervised by or beholding to. Um, I've certainly seen enough medical legal cases where docs took the advice of uh, community mental health, and uh, when the patient committed suicide, the docs were still involved in the case. And I couldn't echo that any more strongly than what Greg just said. Uh, CMS views the same thing. So does the OAG. And there's no question those people do not have privileges in your facility. They are not physicians. They're not uh, licensed to make decisions on whether they have an emergency or not. So if they tell you they don't meet admitting criteria and you think otherwise, uh, you must do something else to go over their head. So good yeah. point, Greg. Um, boarding aren't issues? They, go aren't ahead, they, Greg. Aren't they basically acting as a consultant? But you're adjuncts. still the, they're adjuncts. They're adjuncts. Your decision making, yes. Yeah, you are still responsible. You've asked for these people to give you some advice, but you're free to accept or reject their advice, uh, and you re maintain responsibility for the patient. Yes, and that includes where, like, some of these, they come in and tell you where you can admit Medicaid patients, these Medicaid managed con contract patients' beds. Well, if you think that's going too far. They're going to be unstable by the time they get there. You have to say, I'm sorry, I can't send it to that hospital. I need it to send place closer, or I need to admit them to my hospital. So there's another area where you can't listen to them. If you think going too far where they want you to send them, they'll arrive in an unstable condition. All right. Any other pearls here, Bob? Boarding patients. Most hospitals don't know, but the Joint Commission has issued a whole bunch of recommendations and requirements as it relates to boarding psych patients. So I'm not going to go through them all, but you got to dig them up, learn them, and implement them. Okay. And if you're going to board patients, make sure you know what the role is of your mental health workers and the uh, psychiatrist you have on call. And what a lot of EDs are doing now, you don't want to admit these patients to the floor in general beds. So they're putting together three-bed, six-bed, nine-bed units in an ED where they upgrade, house them, use nurses that have uh, mental health skills or psychiatry backgrounds. Um, and so they try to co collate all these people in one location for security and other purposes. So you provide better care, more secure care while you're waiting to get them transferred someplace else. Although the problem there is they still are incapacitating many emergency departments where the majority of the people who are being held are psych patients because it takes so long to get them placed. Yes. And then you got problems like they had in Washington where they had the state Supreme Court declare it's illegal to do boarding. And that created all kinds of consternation and grief in the state of Washington. 
but it does it does eliminate your risk in a lot of ways of elopement problems. They get better care. Mm-hmm. Uh, CMS looks at it as if you're doing more for them as opposed to just throw, boarding them in a corner someplace or throwing them up on the floor where they could impact others as well. So it just it looks better, and they do get better care. And, if, and when you're going to transfer them, you have to know in advance where are we going to transfer, how are we going to transfer them, are we going to decide whether we're going to repatriate patients back or not if we have the inpatient settings. Uh, I will tell you the state attorney generals think that MTAL ends once we stabilize them in the ED, and they think they can de- tell you where to send patients. All right, so they're your, they're your uh, this has happened in Tennessee and a number of other states where the state attorney generals got in the middle of them and says, I'm sorry, once their stable federal law ends, now we can tell you we're the state. We control the health and welfare of our citizens. All right, so you've got that to work on as well. And when you're going to train, change paper, make sure you send everybody under formal hold papers. A lot of ER docs send paper under voluntary to some voluntary unit someplace. Well, that means they could they could change their mind in route, and you'd have to drop them off at the local corner, and they could go kill themselves or somebody else. And there's lots of cases where this has happened. Yep. Or they use. Uh, the low contract EMS bidder to transfer them instead of someone who is well qualified, knows how to secure patients, or in one case doesn't un- unbind them from the stretcher and lets them walk into the psych unit where he runs out and jumps in the ocean and kills himself, drowns himself. And there's lots of cases like that. So you got to make sure you get them from point A to point B with nothing bad happening to them, particularly when you know if they're transferring them for economic reasons or repatriation reasons that this is going to be highly scrutinized by the government agencies and potential litigation. Bob, early on, you mentioned that uh, they were being transferred from this one hospital 11 minutes away by police car. Uh, the mode of transportation, uh, that's a uh, police car seems very safe to me. <laughs> well, the reviewer for the, uh, the government in that case said it's perfectly appropriate to transfer people by ambulance or in other cases analogous to that. All right. You they mean, thought that mean, was per- You mean by by police car? Yes. You know, they have to have a physician review all these cases before they can find you. All right. So the physicians typically will say that's perfectly fine to go by police car be- in some cases. You know, not that acidotic thrashing person I mentioned. But if you had someone who's you know, low risk suicidal patients been your ED for 16 hours, everything else is worn off, you started meds and stuff, they're perfectly docile. Is it reasonably probable they will get there safely with no material deterioration? The answer to that is clear-cut yes. Greg's shaking his head up and down. I can see it. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, the one thing is you can't open the car door in the back seat in police cars. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And the two guys in the front seats are big guys with guns. They're not going very far. Right. So they don't use the statute to decide that. All right, that's that was that is how you should evaluate that. And if we send them inappropriately in the back of a police car, then that's okay for the government to come after us. If if you know if it was the wrong mode of transport, wrong distance, whatever. <clears throat> some people you need to send by ambulance. You know, you might have to give them some additional medications in route. All right, you might need to have a nurse in the back of the ambulance to do that. Others you don't. All right, but all those things come into account that you have to think of when you're transferring somebody under metallic because. The transfer itself is what whether they're stable or not. The mode, who, when, where, how, uh, what resources you send with it. That's the determining factor, not that they still needed examination or treatment for some condition. That's the wrong standard. 
Bob, uh, given the fact that so many psych patients are being held for long periods of time, uh, and the families are probably pretty upset by seeing these people in the hallway for an indeterminate period of time, it would seem that there would be a relatively low threshold for whistleblowers uh, when people are, are, are being held so that... Um, and that once the whistle is blown, the precedents of this case become operant. And so I think the danger seems to be fairly substantial. Uh, it is. That's exactly what happened in the state of Washington. Uh, Ten patients who were being held, uh, families complained. They got lawyers, and they dug up the state's involuntary commitment act, involuntary treatment act. And in it, it said that they were required to have immediate treatment and in-state psychiatric hospitals not in local emergency departments. And they were not, the, the state agencies were not following their own state laws in this. So that prompted a lot of lawyers to look at state involuntary commitment statutes in other states to see if that pre prevented inhibited boarding. And certainly this is going to prompt a whole bunch of MTALA issues uh, now because this, you know, this has gotten out that this is a big issue. Okay. You know, my contention is you don't have a duty to stabilize until you transfer them, so it doesn't control a boarding issue because we've already examined them, completed the medical screening exam, and decided they had an emergency. Right? The screening exam ends once you said no emergency or there is an emergency. That's the end of the screening exam. Now you have this time period in the emergency department, which is controlled by state law, standard of care issues, and if and when I'm going to send them someplace else, all right, that's when Imtala controls that. The people from CMS at ASAP kept saying that, wait a minute, it says you got to do whatever you can to stabilize them before you transfer. Therefore, you have to, while you're, while you're boarding them, you have to do that. Well, that's not true if they're going to be transferred in stable condition. That's only true under the statute if you transfer them in an unstable condition. Now, and, of course, it says that in their own interpretive guidelines. It says that clearly in the statute, <clears throat> but I couldn't get her off of that. She kept thinking that's what it says. All right. And so they have this in their mind that it controls this entire time from the time you've examined them until the time they go three, three weeks later, or ten days later, or two days later, however long they are. And that's what we need to get them off of that because that's outside their jurisdiction. Very good. Um, Rick? Last thing I'll say. Okay. One thing. is when, when you're transferring psych patients, this happens all the time. Don't go by the papers that were filled out 24 hours earlier. Make sure you re-examine the patient prior to transfer and make sure they're stable. Recheck their vital signs and document the daylights out of it. Fill out a new MTALA transfer form at the time of transfer all right, and document all the stuff in the medical records. And while you got them boarded in your emergency department, the emergency physician should see these patients regularly, at least once a shift, and write a note. And it can be as simple as no change, still stable, doing fine, whatever, waiting placement. But you got to make sure you keep track of them and be responsible for them while they're in your emergency department. Yeah, more than one time I've been the expert on cases where the next doctor's note said, still sleeping soundly. Uh, well, when you've got an expanding subdural, you're sleeping soundly too sometimes. Uh, I've had several of those. And so, Bob, you're absolutely right. Repeat the exam so we have something current. It always looks bad when you transfer somebody who's got uh, divergent gaze and and is is in an apostatic position in their body. That's really <laughs> not caused by a sight condition in most cases. 
Well, it's a big deal for CMS and the OIG about reevaluating patients at the time of transfer. And right. it should be. It's a big deal <laughs> clinically. It's, we should be doing this. But they think that, you know, that's very important in terms of transferring to make sure that they are indeed stable at the time of transfer. Although if they're still suicidal, they think they're unstable at the time of transfer. Hey, Bob, listen, one of the things that I had written to you in an email is we wanted to ring out of you in this 75 minutes every pearl that you can give us. Uh, uh, and you you also are involved in some non-Intel-related matters. Can you give us a little uh, words of wisdom uh, over the last couple of years of things that uh, are uh, operant in emergency medicine that we ought to be uh, more careful about? Uh one I see a lot of is sort of a corollary to the psych patient is patients with belly pain or patients that stay in the ED for long periods of time where you don't see a course documented in the medical record. You see something right at the beginning. You know, they might have come in with a drug overdose and they're unconscious for their heroin overdose, and you see nothing at the end that says they're awake when you send them home or the belly pain that was there forever. So. I guess one of the things I see regularly, lessons learned, is make sure you document the course. Here's the reevaluations. Here's the condition at the time of discharge in your medical decision-making and process about why you sent home this long player or why you did X, Y, and Z. Very good. I mean, obviously, I see a lot of these cases where the first examination isn't bad. If they've been there for five hours and you're turning the patient over to another doc, maybe there ought to be a second exam somewhere to see whether they're getting better or not. And uh, usually at the time where you turn over a patient, I'm a strong believer that you ought to go to the bedside with the next doctor and take a look so you're at least in agreement with what the patient looks like at the time you're turning over the case. Yeah, I would, I would echo that, particularly for sick patients, patients you're worried about, patients with a workup just sort of getting in start in process. You know, if it's if it's the ankle case, you just need to look at the x-ray. You can talk to the patient and say, look, my, my colleague's going to look at the x-ray. He'll come back and talk to you, you know, once he gets the result. Uh, but in general, I mean, instead of doing bore, uh, uh, computer screen rounds where you just load a look at the yeah. windows, it would be a lot better to walk around and talk to the patients. You know, they see that you care about them and see that you can't transfer into care and make sure it's getting done right. So yeah, I like be, that idea. Yeah, it'd be nice to say, this is Dr. Smith. He's taking over. He's very good. Give him something because it's terrible for a patient to have a new face appear and say, oh, by the way, the other guy went home. <laughs> I, I'm, now, I'm now running your case. Uh, by the way, just as a blast from the past, uh, Bob is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati program in emergency medicine, which was one of the first in the country. And uh, I was reviewing some cases, a Kentucky case, and the, the defense expert, uh, and this is just a couple of months ago, was Bruce Janiak. Uh, Bruce now lives in Augusta, Georgia. He's the first human to have the term emergency medicine on his uh, diploma from the residency, the one he made up himself, by the way. He had uh, the first guy. And Bruce is still seeing patients. So I don't want to hear any whining from children that they're they're going to, you know, work 20 years and get out. I, Bruce has got to be five or six years older than I am, and he's still working shifts. So for all of you out there burned out, I can tell you at least the name of one doc 
who's still being pretty damn productive. Uh, and uh, Bob, you know Bruce, and uh, he's and a he's, great guy. And he's actually still written some nice things about risk management. About you know, it, it goes to back to some of the basics: is be nice to people, take good care of folks. You know, um, attitude is everything. Um, so some of those things, and and he still does cases. So oh no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely does. Uh, Rick, what else we got going on today? We've exhausted this man. Well, you know, I do have a uh, an article. We don't have to beat this up, given the fact that we have uh, probably about ten minutes left. But this was an article precipitated by the video that went viral about this cop in Salt Lake City manhandling a nurse who refused to draw a blood alcohol. I don't know if you've seen that, but he's basically wrestling her. Ultimately, puts her in cuffs, puts her in the police car, and he requested that she draw blood on a person who was the victim of a traffic accident caused by some other people. So this person was not even thought to be involved in any way in a crime. And by, by the way, Rick, let's be fair to all parties involved here. There must have been something wrong with that cop because he had so many other alternatives here under Utah law. I looked up some of this stuff and all he, if he'd put him under arrest in the state of Utah, he can demand that. If he'd gotten a warrant, he can demand that. There, there's not much under Utah law you can't do. He did the exact wrong things to this nurse, and somebody took a picture of it. Well, I you, mean, he also wanted to draw the blood himself. Apparently, he was an EMT or something to that effect who was at least qualified in some environment to, uh, to draw blood. But in any case, uh, this precipitated this article in the New England Journal, December 28th, healthcare professionals and law enforcement, which is a, you know, a recurring theme. We've heard about this right. lots and lots of times. But this uh, incident uh, precipitated people taking uh, a good look. And this all comes down to a lot of variation in states about who can do what. There is the uh, uh, Supreme Court has basically talked about the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution uh, basically requires that you give people the option to say no, but that ultimately, ultimately, there needs to be a very lucid policy that is uh, created by your hospital, shown to the local police in advance so that everybody is on the same page here, and that it needs to be very, quite specific about uh, what and what cannot be done. And once that policy is established, that the healthcare staff uh, abide by it, because to the extent that they don't, they will be violating the uh, rights of the patient to uh, 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 consenting and, and the like. Well, the state of California, Rick, and the state of Michigan have already taken care of this in some, some way. State of California's statute says when you get a driver's license, you have given permission to have your blood drawn. If you still refuse, you know what the conclusion is? You're you guilty. Yeah, you, you lose. lose your, yeah, you lose, your, you lose your license when you refuse. Um, so basically the motivation for you to say okay is, is quite high. The other thing is you can't use as your defense, well, I didn't understand what they were saying to me. I was too drunk at the time. I mean, that's not a good thing to say in court either. Um, the only time the taking of, of a sample 
There's a very important case, which is called Roken v. California, 1952, in which they, without permission, pumped a guy's stomach for drugs. Now, in Roken, went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and what they said was, it, you know, it shocked the conscience of the court. They viewed blood taking as sort of a usual and customary medical procedure. They, in fact, the complaint was not just Fourth Amendment, it was 14th Amendment, which uh, was both brought up, which is due process of law. That phrase, due process of law, can get put into a lot of stuff. And I, Bob knows more about this than I do, but uh, the, the Roken case went against the state of California in that case, Roken prevailed. Yes, there is this idea of the uh, shocking the conscious. And there was an example in this, in this article about a patient who was intubated, paralyzed for a rectal extraction of evidence. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. I uh, see some of these things you can't do. The other thing is in most states, you know, um, a warrant is still required for a lot of things we do. Now, I know the arguments for and against warrants, but um, you know what? Warrant is still a minor protection for all of us uh, from having our bodies and our and our premises and that sort of things invaded. Uh, it's interesting now with all the cyber stuff, uh, what actually is, what is protected, uh, is very difficult to determine sometimes. And we'd like to think it's real straightforward. It isn't. Lawyers argue this stuff from beginning to end. And, uh, you know, California has a lot of these cases. You're the place where they, they got the case on going through your garbage. Do they need a warrant to do that? And the Supreme Court said, no, nope, they can you go don't through own, your garbage. You don't own your garbage. <laughs> you <laughs> don't own, well, it's interesting. You don't own your garbage because you put it into the stream of collection for the community. So what they said was, you don't do it. Uh, same way with your feces. They can keep you in a cell to see if you kick out those packets of cocaine. <laughs> they don't have to take it because once it comes out of you, uh, the Border Patrol gets to have your feces. So uh, think about that. Um, to bring us back to Imtala, there is a Imtala issue as it relates to police blood alcohols. You know, they bring them in, they bring the patients into the emergency department and they say, okay, uh, nurse, please draw the blood. Well, the question is, does that individual need a medical screening exam? Well, if their patient's alert, wait and alert and says, sure, I'll, I'll get my blood, and it's a test only, meaning they're just going to draw the test, they probably don't. But you better document that, that patient was awake, alert, and, and awake, able to refuse our offered medical screening exam. So who can do that? That can't be the nurse, because who can ascertain competence? It has to be a physician. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so and, you and can't just let these patients go off to the side here in an emergency department and get their blood drawn. All right, if they go back into the jail and something bad happens to them, well, their people are going to come back or the government's going to come back and said, or their behavior obviously manifested a request for examination and treatment of a possible medical condition. Therefore, you should have, uh, you should have provided one and given us this uh, screening exam. So you better have a policy on how you deal with this. And anytime you are not going to provide them a screening exam, you have the patient sign a form that says, I'm refusing the hospital's offered medical screening exam, so you can prove a negative. You didn't prove, you denied them their, their federal right to the medical screening exam. We're correct. All uh, right. 
uh, Greg, you have, uh, let's go a couple more minutes because there's another part of this article that talks about HIPAA and what hospitals can release regarding uh, the information of patients in the department who are conscious, unconscious, those kinds of things. And again, they're basically saying, please make a policy, please make it uh, clear to the staff what the policy is on what you can and cannot say about patients in the, in the department. Bob, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, HIPAA should be really easy for emergency physicians. Anytime we need to say anything to anybody as it relates to the care of the patient, it's okay. Anytime we say anything to anybody that's not related to the patient, it's not okay. Well, so, you know, newspapers, uh, reporters are in the waiting room. What can you tell them? Nothing. <laughs> All right. It's, it's none of their business. That's up to the patient to decide what to tell them. All right. So you go talk to the patient. Say, the, the, the press is out here. What would you like me to say to them? Because anything and everything that relates to the patient's care is theirs. Um, so for us, it's real simple. If we want to call up a consultant, if we want to get their, their talk to their old doctor before, if you want to give information to the doctor who's going to be taking care of them at the next hospital, we can do all that. All right? But what we can't do is, speaking of police blood alcohols, you know, we can say to the cop, oh, is this person's alcohol came back or to uh, a press. This, ha this happened in Ann Arbor, Greg, I think. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. The, the, the nurse gave the, the – it was a police detective or police officer – who came in and his blood alcohol was over the limit. And so they released that information. They blabbed and gave it to the press and they successfully sued the nurse. Yeah. See, it's a waste of time to do that because the police can get uh, a warrant to get the record, which has that on it. You, if they go through the process and I, I can't help, but to repeat the phrase, due process of law, there's a reason why we go to a judge and we get a warrant to get the result, the record. But you shouldn't be inventing uh, release of information in the department on a sort of go-as-it-comes-by basis. That's, that's not right. As, a, as an emergency physician, put in any of these positions, particularly in the middle of the night when you know, can't reach hospital counsel or something, you should just ask yourself – Am I giving information to someone who needs it to take care of the patient clinically, take care of the patient medically, clinically? If the answer to that is no, you're in trouble. If the answer to that is yes, you don't have any trouble with HIPAA. Hey, listen, Greg, give us a little wine of the month there if you have any. I will do that. And uh, we're going to talk about a Napa wine, which uh, fortunately I have a lot of friends who open a lot of bottles. One of them is called Black Stallion Winery. Their Cabernet uh, 2015 is exceptional, uh, It's and it's not that pricey. This is Napa Valley, the big name in the United States, 30 bucks a bottle, and uh, I, I can't tell it from the expensive stuff. What has gone, what has gone crazy is a wine that we talked about here many years ago on the show, Plump Jack, which is, again, a Napa wine. We used to buy it at, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks a bottle. Well, they've become like this huge thing in Asia. Uh, so the rich Chinese, of which there are a lot now, and the Japanese um, have been buying this stuff. It's now at $300 a bottle. And let me tell you, their 2015 Cabernet, uh, which is very good wine, they put out, this is their first vintage to come out with a screw top. 
you spending $300 a bottle for a screw top wine. I remember when we were spending two bucks a bottle, you know, and sitting in Garrett rooms drinking this stuff. Uh, but uh, for those of you who think the cork has a future, sell your cork futures right now. The Germans have basically stopped using cork. The, the new high-pressure uh, twist-top caps are the thing, and that's on $300 a bottle wine. So there you go, Rick. Oh, poor Portugal. You know, there goes the economy. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're not going to sell any more of those corks, I'll tell you. They're going down the tube. Hey, Bob, any final words? Uh, no, uh, just uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, good to talk about things. Um, uh, many more issues to talk about with psych in the future sometimes. Psych's just so hard for emergency physicians. It's just uh, – Well, and there's so much of it. I there's mean, there's so much of it, and it's increased over time. And we've seen yes. so many more patients now in our emergency departments than we used to. Um, so we got to get good at this. You know, we got to figure out ways to get them access to care, uh, better ways to take care of them in their ED, better use of telemetry, um, better communications with the community. Um, you know, we need as a as a specialty, we just sort of can't wash our hands of this. We got to dig in, get involved, and uh, do what we can to make this a lot better for our patients. Yeah. It doesn't sound like other people are going to help us make this go away, particularly unless we uh, step up and. Uh, Act as the advocacy. Yeah. One, one of the things I always ask, CMS won't let, a lot of hospitals try to get together and put together way stations, like, you know, where you can offload all the patients from the ED, secure area, well-trained people, and, and sort of collate them all. CMS won't let you do that because you're not sending them to a, quote, an acute care hospital. So, you know, there's ways that they get in our way. Of letting us help take care of patients because we should be able to send patients to crisis centers, residential treatment centers. There's lots of places we can send them other than an acute care hospital. Uh, And so they can help us as as opposed to hindering our ability to get these patients access to services. Yeah, and they need our help on this. The law is always 20 to 30 years behind the actual practice of medicine and what we're doing. And I think that it's our job to help them along on some of these issues. I really do. All right. Well, folks, that's uh, Risk Management Monthly for March 2018. So on behalf of Rick and Bob and myself, have a great time. Yeah, Bob, Bob, you've been you've been uh, okay. Uh, I just wanted to say you've been a terrific uh, uh, guest. Uh, There are virtually no people that, uh, that Greg and I know have as thorough an understanding of the uh, Mtala situation than you, and I do appreciate your being our resident Mtala expert. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure.